Okay, I think it's time to begin. Uh, we'll, we will go until, uh, according to the schedule, 10 after 12, and then take a five minute, uh, let me see, yeah, five minute break, and then resume at 12.15, lecture till one, then have lunch, and, uh, and then resume at, at two o'clock. Okay, so after talking about the Jewish hermeneutical uh, challenge and um, the uh, hyper-Christocentric uh, or Christotelic challenge, the third one is the postmodern approach. Um, and th this is a very uh, serious challenge. When I wrote my Familius article on, on these issues back in 1989, this had not yet flowered in old and the new studies. It had been an approach around really since probably the late 50s or 60s in literary circles and uh, English literature circles, departments of English and universities and began to then trickle down into biblical studies. And um, <clears throat> specifically what we're talking about is a, a, a reader response interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, what is a reader response? Uh, What's well, part of postmodern hermeneutics that affirms that readers and not original authors create meaning. Okay, so when you're interpreting an Old Testament text, you don't have access to the author's meaning. All you have is what the text says. Uh, you can't get into the author's mind, he's no longer around. And so you're forced ultimately to uh, basically uh, interpret that to create the meaning of that text. So I want to unpack that a little bit with respect to how reader response interpreters apply their trade to uh, uh, the New, New Testament use uh, of the old. And what I'm going to do is uh, focus on the book of Revelation since that is such a juicy place to focus because that's a uh, uh, so interpreted in so many different ways by interpreters. But this has really become something that has affected even evangelical institutions. Uh, I, I know, um, in fact, uh, uh, my daughter was an English major at an evangelical college and loved reading, you know, classical English literature in high school. She goes to college, majors in English, and decides she's going to quit that major. She's going to go into art. And uh, I said, what's going on? She said, it's a philosophy class. We were, we're not really trying to get at the meaning of what the English poets are saying or uh, the English novelists. It's, we're, we're, we're kind of being taught to create our own meanings. Uh, you know, that's just, it's more of a philosophical hermeneutics class. And um, so uh, I think that can be, uh, you know, and I'll tell you why this is, is a concern to me. It's because of the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture. This is where Luther was so concerned with Erasmus. If you read the uh, beginning of his uh, bondage of the will, I really encourage you, if you haven't read that book, read it, especially the first part where he's concerned with Erasmus because Erasmus was involved in allegorical interpretation and that sort of thing. He's sort of a, we could call him a typological foreshadowing of postmodern interpreters 
And, um, and, and uh, Luther was concerned that this really struck at the heart of the persecuted scripture. So that's why I'm concerned about this because really um, I, I've seen this even now in biblical studies, uh, not, not just in uh, interpreters in the book of Revelation, but I've seen this um, uh, in, in the um, uh, uh, theological interpretation of scripture movement. I'm sure some of you have heard of that movement, theological interpretation of scripture movement. Um, if, if you want a good definition and critique of it, Don Carson, go online, you know, type in Don Carson theological interpretation of scripture. He'll give you a good summary of it and uh, a good critique of it. And uh, one of its um, features is, is this reader response criticism, and especially um, uh, in its typical feature, I would say, um, interpreters are reluctant to be too convicted about their interpretation. Why? Because they don't want to express hermeneutical power over anyone else. They don't want to express that, that sort of hermeneutical arrogance to be convicted about your interpretation. Um, now, I think we have, if we have a proper view of Scripture, I mean, you can see how that can strike at the heart of preaching. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think we can, as you're going to say, I think we can be convicted because I think that while we cannot exhaustively understand Scripture, we can sufficiently understand it to be saved, to be sanctified, and to glorify God. And I, I think that one reason uh, that you study Scripture more in depth in a seminary is to be gifted as uh, more gifted as a teacher and a preacher so that you can more deeply and richly interpret the text with conviction. If you don't have conviction, you're dead. And if you buy in to reader response criticism, then um, I, I think that it will um, really strike again at the heart of the conviction that you express. Now, in 1989, intriguingly, when I wrote my article in Camelicos, a fellow by the name of J.P. Ruiz, R-U-I-Z, published a book on the use of Ezekiel in the book of Revelation. In particular, he contended that the church's liturgical setting is the privileged context for hearing and interpreting Revelation. I agree with that. No problem. He then goes on and says the hearers are called in this context to wise reflection on John's writing, which is at the heart of the hermeneutical actualization of Revelation. Now, some of these terms begin to be fuzzy because they're a little, they're a little fancy and you want to know what exactly do you mean by hermeneutical actualization of Revelation? If you mean interpreting it, I agree. Um, he basically says, John alludes extensively to Old Testament tradition with which his readers are also familiar, and he exhorts them, quote, to reappropriate the tradition which is theirs, end quote, in the same way he has reappropriated Old Testament tradition. So he goes on now, and he claims, what this means is that just as John creates meaning in Old Testament passages, so he's setting himself up as a model for his readers to create meaning of what he's writing. 
Um, it says new meanings are offered, which are not simply repetitions or combinations of older ones, brand new meanings that have nothing to do with the original meaning of what even John wrote. And then what John's doing has nothing to do with the original meaning of the Old Testament. This is very interesting because it's somewhat like Peter Hens. Remember I was telling you that he said, in contrast to Longenecker, Longenecker says, yeah, New Testament writers, uh, they interpret non-contextually, but we shouldn't do that. Hens went on and said, yeah, we should. And Ruiz is saying the same thing. Very interesting. So Peter Hens is just not, not alone. Now, Ruiz is a Catholic interpreter. Um, this might make a little more sense that Catholics, you know, uh, are involved in the sense of plenty more, which is another very fuzzy phrase. I'm not always sure what people mean by it. Someone, sometimes what they mean by it is that there are deeper meanings in Scripture that are not part of the original intention. Now, if by sense is plenty or all, it means it's full sense. If all you mean is full sense, yeah, I believe that Scripture has a full sense. And that we may not, uh, well, we might sufficiently understand what an Old Testament author is saying. We may not exhaustively understand it. In fact, probably not. In fact, I contend, and this is a little weird sounding, that New Test, that Old Testament writers were not even exhaustively fully conscious of their full interpretation. I'll give you a beautiful example. I mean, how many times have you been in a classroom and professors lecturing? And maybe what maybe this will happen today. Professor's lecturing, and student will raise the hand and say, Well, now do you mean such and such? Yeah, that's included in what I'm saying. That's what I'm talking about with regard to Old Testament writers. It's still linked to his organic uh, uh, meaning, but uh, it's out there in his peripheral vision. If you're interested in this concept, I've written an article called the Cognitive Peripheral Vision of Biblical Writers in Westminster Theological Journal uh, back probably 20, 2016 and 15. So, but that's not what Ruiz is saying. He's saying that uh, new meanings are created. And uh, so in Revelation, there's an ongoing open-endedness of meaning. And he calls this the fertility of the metaphoric terrain. Especially in Revelation, you see, because we have pictures, some contend more, not just your way, some contend there's, there are infinite meanings in those pictures. Um, well, I, I would contend that there are layers of meaning in metaphors. Sometimes you might have four meanings in a metaphor, but not infinite meanings. There's a way hermeneutically to control those. How do you do that? Well, Let's, let's uh, say you've got a picture that's picked up from the Old Testament by a New Testament writer. You go to the Old Testament, look at the context, and see what the context says and, and how it's defining that picture. So in the New Testament, when it says Herod is a fox, well, what does that mean? Well, depending on context, it could mean uh, he's a very hairy guy. Or uh, it could mean, hey, he's really wise. It could mean he's cunning in a dangerous way. It could mean, wow, he's a fast track runner or whatever, okay? So context is king, queen, and prime minister, and it controls the meanings. So maybe in that illustration of Herod as a fox, we could say, yeah, he's, he's, he's yeah, he was a wise guy, but cunningly wise and dangerous. 
uh, and and brutish and animal-like. So you, you can have all those legitimately so, okay? So that, that's not allegorical interpretation to see layers of meaning in metaphorical pictures. Um, but this is why a lot of people, it, it, the, the, the metaphors of revelation are just primed to be interpreted this way in the eyes of many. And this is what Ruiz is saying is that there's an uh, ever-ending open-endedness of uh, the meaning of the metaphors. John's words gather more meanings over time as people interpret them. They have endless multiplicity. So for example, if, uh, even if one could understand Ezekiel's original intention, which is what he's writing on, the use of Ezekiel and Revelation, even if uh, that intention could be understood in the wording of a particular text when John uses it, new endless meanings can be derived by different interpretative communities. Uh, about what Ezekiel intended. Now, lastly, Ruiz adduces one more line of evidence in favor of the notion that John formally encourages his readers to interpret his statements, which are endlessly open-ended and meaning. Now, I don't know how many of you have uh, studied Revelation in depth, but there's something really weird about the book of Revelation in Greek. And G.B. <clears throat> Carey, uh, taught at Oxford University. He was Tom Wright's supervisor. Um, uh, G.B. Care um, uh, was talking about the um, so-called solecisms, S-O-L-E-C-I-S-M-S, solecisms. Those are grammatical uh, uh, um, errors or gramma awkward grammatical constructions in the book of Revelation. They're all over the place. And commentators uh, have discussed this ever since the, the early church from about the fourth century. They've discussed this feature, tried to give different reasons for it. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you one example of it. If you, um, anybody have a Greek text? I, I have mine on my phone, but I left my phone in the, in the room. Uh, anybody have a Greek text for me? You mean to grab most of the library? No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, uh, wait a minute, I have a computer. Thank you, thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll just, uh, yeah, you might support me. Let me see. I need you to get me to one four. Oh, beautiful. He's got it. That's fine. Thank you so much. Actually, I wanted Miss Lalan, not the Tyndale version. The Tyndale version is fine. In Revelation one four, we get uh, the first solecism, the first grammatically awkward structure. And um, uh, Garrett, uh, uh says that, you know, some of these are errors. In fact, my, my supervisor at Cambridge, JPN Sweeney, wrote a commentary on Revelation, said uh, he, he called these howlers, you know, um, that, that John really had kind of a, if he had taken a Greek test, he would have made a B, is the idea. And um, because he, he, he doesn't, uh, keep cases in the way he should. So in Revelation 1, 4, it says, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace. And then it says, 
from the one who is. And in Greek, ha-on, it's uh, pronounced ha-on, apa ha-on, from the one who is. Now, if you learn the rudimentary elements of Greek, uh, ha-on is in the nominative case. It's the case designating subjects. And it can never uh, follow apa. Apa never takes a case in the nominative, a case that designates the subject. It's always, uh, usually, the, almost always the genitive case of possession. And so um, th 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 this, this would have caused, um, uh, I, I kind of compare it, Greek hearers, this would have sounded like scratching your, your fingernails on uh, a linguistic uh, blackboard. Um, it just would have sounded really screechy and awkward. Uh, so apahaon, and it's the it's, it's so this happens early in the book of Revelation. It goes throughout the whole book. Like I, I've written a whole essay on this uh, uh, and summarized it in my Revelation commentary. Um, and so uh, Ruiz would say that these awkward grammatical instruction constructions occur to stop the reader. Like, makes the reader pause. What is that? And uh, his view is it's a signal that the reader is to start creating meaning. Very interesting. Um, I contend, it's very interesting, as I looked at these constructions, I found that usually they were filled with, guess what? Old Testament allusions. And the one here, Ha'on, Uh, oh, and you have the app all before it. Uh, and and it, it, that, that never follows. So what's John doing there? Does he not know his Greek? No, he, he does want us to pause. I think Ruiz is right. But, you know, it's really easy to detect a quotation, isn't it? You know, when you're studying to preach or teach, allusions are hard. Some of you may have heard Peter Williams. How many of you have detected those? Illusions that Williams talked about, the prodigal son uh, uh, parable. And Ha'on, if you do a study of Ha'on, it occurs twice in Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am, and, and the Greek Old Testament repeats it, I am, Ha'on, Ha'on. In fact, in the Nesalalan uh, uh, 28th edition, in the margin, they have Exodus 3.14. This is an allusion to Exodus 3.14. This is the guy. In fact, it goes on. It says, the one who is and was and is coming. And that threefold phrase is found in Isaiah 41 to 43, expanding Exodus 3.14. So there's also an allusion to some of the texts uh, where you have that threefold expansion. But John wants them to pause and, and, and see that God the Father is the one who revealed himself to Moses. And that's who's speaking here. And uh, it is intriguing that the formula elsewhere in the book of chapter four is the one who was, it's to come. Why do you put 
is first and then was, well, I think it's because uh, a lot of them are in trial. He wants to know, I'm with you. That's why he changes it. And uh, But here, um, he wants them to recognize. He puts it after I fall. He wants them to pause a moment and to say, ah, okay, yeah. That, that, that's from uh, that, that's from Exodus. So um, Ruiz would say, "Yeah, it's a pause, Beale. You're right." But so the readers will create meaning. Okay, I, I disagree with that. Um, the old, with the Old Testament allusion there, uh, I, I think it, it, it explains why he has it in an awkward construction. It's more than an accident. But that often occurs elsewhere where you have the soul systems, Old Testament illusion. So um, Ruiz is contending for a hermeneutical approach to Revelation, which is aligned with what we call reader response criticism. He contends that interpretative communities are the ultimate determiners of a text meaning and not the original author's intention in that text. So that communities that differ one another with one another, as in let's say religious communities, Catholics and uh, uh, Charismatics and um, Presbyterians, Baptists, uh, we have our communities and let's just respect one another. You know, it's hermeneutical pride to say that one community has a wrong interpretation and we have the right one, okay? So um, now there's another uh, critic who's also a reader response critic. His name is Stephen Moise, M-O-Y-I-S-E. Uh, he, he is uh, English. Uh, he, he taught for a while. I think he still may be there, University of Chichester. I think that's the way you pronounce it. And uh, he said this by utilizing past text, the author of Revelation has produced a fresh composition which invites the reader to participate and create meaning. It's amazing. At the conclusion of his work, he clearly lines up with the notion that the emphasis is to be placed on the reader creating meaning. His reason for doing so is because of a contemporary trend in research, he says, within which he positions his own work. He says this, the emphasis on the author's intention in biblical studies has been largely abandoned, especially in New Testament study, and replaced by a focus either only on the text or in the role of the reader creating meaning. And uh, his ultimate reason for aligning his work with this perspective of research is based on two hermeneutical presuppositions. And that is, number one, we have no access to an author's intention. And number two, meaning is not a given, but it's created by the reader. So really, those are the two presuppositions of reader response criticism. Number one, we have no access to the author's intention because he's not around to talk to him anymore. Number two, meaning is not a given. It's created by the reader. Those are your two basic assumptions in reader response criticism. Now, one's views about these hermeneutical presuppositions will determine how one responds to Moise's work. But I want to make some evaluative com comments about it, uh, which show a, a direction in which I make more, more in-depth comments. But first, to say it's a presupposition, we have no access to an author's intention. Number one, and number two, that meaning is not a given, but has to be created by the reader. I, I don't think these uh, presuppositions are right. Starting points. Remember what presuppositions are? They're starting points that you don't prove. 
You start with them. And so uh, I think there's a better starting point that makes more sense of the biblical data. That is, we do have some access to an author's intention and can perceive sufficiently an author's meaning, though his speech act, uh, and I, I think it's through his speech act in scripture that we can determine part of that meaning. Even though he's not around anymore, that speech act in scripture is just like a historical act that we can determine what was that historical act about, so a speech act can be determined. Um, and again, this has to do with the perspicuity of scripture. Uh, another evaluation I'd make of Moise, not only challenging his presuppositions, is um, he makes an overstatement when he says that emphasis on the author's intention has largely been abandoned in New Testament studies. Well, I just would encourage you to read your typical article in New Testament studies, Biblica, uh, Journal for the Study of the New Testament, and so on. Uh, the contributors usually get their articles accepted because they're making a contribution, which is a new perspective on what is in the text. So no, I, I, I think he's He's just wrong on that. Um, that. This is not some trend in biblical studies. But I will say, it is true that more and more scholars are being influenced by reader response criticism. Now, third, modern writers who operate with the assumptions of reader response criticism, especially the notion that readers and not original authors create meaning, they also usually assume that readers of their own works inconsistently are not left to create meaning. In other words, when Moise writes, he expects you to understand what he's written. That's inconsistent. He should say, hey, I know you can't understand what I'm saying, so feel free to create your own meaning. Okay, now, Reader response critics assume their audience understands what they're saying. It's amazing. Amazing contradiction. If you want a really good response to this, Kevin Van Hooser has written a book around 2000. It's called, Is There a Meaning in This Text? Is there a meaning in this text? If you really want to dive into this, if you're in some way you confronted this or uh, you're wondering about it, tech questions, that's, that's, that's a, the book to go to. At least one of them, yes, sir. And could it be argued that certain type of literature would have that ability that great invites to create meaning, mm -hmm. whereas other type of literature, such as essays, wouldn't have that type of invite? Uh, I don't know what type of literature would, would, would have the meaning for your response critics. Uh, uh, that, that, that would justify reader response critics to practice their trade. I suppose, you know, one, someone said, uh, uh, you know, everything's possible, but not all things are probable. So I don't know. I'd have to be shown some literature where we're invited just to create meaning. It's possible, but typically that's not the case. Yeah. But if that's the genre, okay, then we're perceiving 
that the genre is instructing us to create meaning. So we're still understanding an original intention if you're following me. Okay. Okay. But that's weird. I don't know. <laughs> it would do. Um, okay. Good question. By the way, you know, we're going to have a time of questions, but anytime you want to ask a question, feel free, especially with this lecture. This, this is probably the hardest lecture I'll, I'll be giving. Um, now, the idea that readers create meaning is likely due in part to a hermeneutical flaw of confusing original meaning with applicational significance. Because there are infinite applications, okay? And that's legitimate. I mean, you're in one church and I'm in another and they're, you know, they're different situations, of course. But there's one meaning, but with different applications. Um, E.D. Hirsch, if you want a really good book on the difference between meaning and significance, E.D. Hirsch, Validity and Interpretation is the title of that book. That's another one you got to read if you're really interested in this issue of hermeneutics and can we find the original meaning? E.D. Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H. He actually is an English professor and uh, this is published with Yale University Press. Um, this is something that I, I, I think this was in the 80s. I don't have the date here for that publication. Now, Moise himself has begun to distance himself from his views, but, uh, and we've had a lot of interaction in writing and in person. It's always nice to meet someone in person to <coughs> talk about uh, views. In our case, it didn't help, but uh, at least we got to know each other, which was good. Uh, but um, I think he still uh, has not unloosed himself uh, fully from, from these views that I've talked about. So I can't go further in, into analysis of reader response criticism and its relationship to intertextuality. I'm curious, how many have heard the term intertextuality? Right, raise your hand. It's used very positively by some people in the way that, well, the way the new uses the old, that's intertextuality. But it began uh, in the 60s, that, 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 that word uh, with postmodern, uh, a postmodern writer, and it's been developed, and it's got a lot of physical baggage in it. And usually it means when a later text interacts with an earlier text, new meaning is produced. And so I used to use intertextuality. I don't use it anymore because of that possible philosophical baggage that people can attach to it. What I like is inner biblical exegesis. Inner biblical exegesis. I've replaced that uh, with uh, uh, using the term intertextuality. Now, the next challenge to use of the old and the new is the rhetorical approach. The rhetorical approach. And it actually is a child of postmodern interpretation um, and, uh, and reader response criticism. But it's a little bit different. It partakes of it a little bit. Writers like Paul were not primarily concerned to use the Old Testament to convey its original contextual meaning, but only it was used rhetorically to persuade readers. So that Paul, when he quoted the Old Testament, for example, he, he was involved in a power play. And uh, he just wanted to have power over the congregation by quote, quoting these authoritative texts, which new believers would accept as authority, they had no idea what they meant, 
but Paul will quote them and say, you know, do what I say. And here's what I want you to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so uh, this was used to then uh, enhance the writer's apostolic authority. Uh, so now, now some would contend that the majority of the readers that Paul, for example, is writing to, or we can call them hearers, would have been Gentiles and would have not had the educational background to read the Old Testament and appreciate it. This view likely entails that even if many had possessed such an educational preparation to read the Hebrew and Greek Old Testament, um, they, they, well, basically, they, they didn't have that educational background to read uh, the, Greek and he, the, the Greek Old Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament because they were recently converted pagans. So they wouldn't have had much exposure to the Old Testament. So why would Paul... Uh, he, he's not interested in them understanding the Old Testament because they never read it. So why is he using it? Again, to enhance his authority and, and to convince them to do what he's saying, okay? Uh, in, in more uh, modern parlance, it's called power moves. This is used sometimes in political uh, uh, discussions. Um, now, according to some scholars, such considerations make it unlikely that New Testament writers would have expected the majority of the readers to understand the Old Testament and the meaning of the, of the Old Testament. Um, I have some evaluations of this, as you might expect. Um, number one, um, I think we can say Gentiles did not need a high level of education to understand the Old Testament and references to it since these would have been read to the churches and the hearers did not have to read. You don't have, they didn't have to have an educational ability to read, just to hear. And furthermore, it's not just Old Testament quotations that Paul is writing. Read First Timothy, just take Second Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired is profitable for training and discipline. So the man of God may be adequate for every good work. What is that scripture? Old Testament. The Old Testament was read in the church. And when Timothy is told, he says, you know, persevere, 1 Timothy 4.13, in reading and in exhortation and in teaching. What's he reading? Well, it's very clear, especially in light of uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. He's reading the Old Testament. Now, probably he, he may be, it's possible that some of the Gospels were around at that time. It's possible. The reason I say that is because in um, um, 2 Timothy, actually 1 Timothy, uh, I believe it's chapter 5, yeah, it talks about elders who rule well will be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, You'll not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Again, that's Deuteronomy 25.4. And what else does the scripture say? The laborer is worthy of his wages. It's not in the Old Testament. Where is that? It comes out of Luke 10, verse 7. It's put on a par with Deuteronomy 25.4. So it's possible. Might have been a gospel or two available. 
but certainly the Old Testament. So they're, they're being discipled on the Old Testament and of course the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament, which is apostolic tradition and um, how Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, certainly. And uh, so that's the first point uh, of why Gentiles didn't need a high level of education to be able to read. They didn't even need exposure. That's what discipleship's all about. <laughs> And to, and to, they're going to church, they're learning this stuff as new converts. So, so uh, and, and I think in that regard, a second point is, it's not just Paul will read this letter once. And, and that's the only opportunity that they have to hear these Old Testament quotations in their context. It's highly probable that they're read again and again and again in the churches. So that on, on, on second, third, fourth hearings, readers gain uh, more understanding. Um, Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads and the ones hearing the words of the prophecy and keeping the things written therein. So we know uh, these things were read and, and, and they were read likely repeatedly. Colossians 4.16 suggests this as does 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Um, now third point, the first point was Gentiles didn't need a high level of education to understand the Old Testament. Um, secondly, letters would have been reread, so they gained better understanding on subsequent readings. Third, there were letter carriers. We know that Paul had letter carriers, and this was something that was true with Hellenistic letter carriers, just in, in, in the uh, culture itself. One of the roles of the letter carrier was to explain parts of the letter to the recipient. And so letter carriers probably, uh, Paul's letter carriers would have done that, including probably some of the Old Testament. Peter Head, H-E-A-D, who was at Tyndale House for many years, now I believe uh, is at an Anglican college at Oxford, I think Wycliffe. Um, he's, he's written a number of essays, uh, published essays on letter carriers and their significance. So you could Google him and find his essays, very, very good material. Um, fourthly, discipleship in the churches would have been carried on by those who knew the Old Testament and could read and explain it. And I've already really made that point, but remember that Paul styles himself as a didaskalos. He's a teacher, and so is Timothy to be a teacher. What were they to teach? Old Testament and the apostolic interpretation of it. And furthermore, I would say the very presence my last evaluation, the very presence of scripture in Paul's writings indicates that he intended someone to understand it. I don't think he's writing just for himself. But I think, I think that's probably a proper presupposition. Um, and I think probably the best evidence against uh, this rhetorical uh, uh, use of the Old Testament is that and by the way, I believe in rhetoric, and I believe that Paul and the New Testament writers, they were involved in rhetorical use of the Old Testament, but not in the way that I've been talking about here. In fact, there, there's a fellow by the name of Christopher Stanley. He has, um, who, who argues this? His book is appropriately titled, Arguing with Paul, Code, The Rhetoric of Quotations and the Letters of Paul, 2004. Um, so, 
I believe in rhetoric. Rhetoric is to persuade someone. That's what we do as, as preachers, as teachers. We want to persuade people to believe the truth. And uh, when you go back to the Old Testament and you really see its meaning in context, then you carry it over into the new. Oh my gosh, that really makes a powerful impact on the persuasiveness of that Old Testament quotation. So I think that's what indicates Paul was interested in the textual meaning of the Old Testament because when you really interpret those texts in the light of the Old Testament context, it enriches the persuasive power of that text. Persuasion is good as long as it's based on the truth. So that's great. Um, now, last one, the testimony book uh, approach. That's the last challenge to a contextual use of the Old Testament in the New. Okay, I've got about four minutes. Let me stop at 12.10. I think that's correct. Okay. Um, may not finish this one. Uh, there was an older testimony book hypothesis uh, in the very early 1900s. Um, and uh, a fellow by the name of Rendell Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, uh, wrote two volumes called Testimonies. And he believed that there was a testimony book. In other words, a book, which were a collection of uh, apologetic text from the Old Testament that proved Jesus was the Messiah, okay? Uh, and so some believe that uh, these were proof texts used for apologetic reasons. Um, now, if this were the case, if the New Testament writers were appealing, when they quote the Old Testament, if they were appealing to this big book that just had single verses from all of the Old Testament, they were kind of verses that prove that Jesus was the Messiah, then when they quote them, they're quoting from a testimony book. They're not quoting from the context of the Old Testament. Okay? So this is an argument uh, by some that they weren't concerned about context because they didn't have, they, they really didn't go to the Old Testament context. They had this authoritative testimony book, collection of apologetic texts about the Messiah. Um, now, Harris argued for one book. Now there's been a revival of his view. His view was debunked, by the way, by C.H. Dodd. We're going to look at Dodd uh, this afternoon after lunch. Where he, he's very important. Another University of Cambridge professor held Lady Margaret chair there um, of divinity. Um, so uh, now people are arguing there are many testimony books, not just one. They, they, there were many that were circulating. That's sort of the new version of it. Um, so uh, someone like Paul would presumably have uh, uh, been influenced by such testimony uh, books. Now, as I said, we're going to look at C.H. Dodd. Uh, he believed 
that his conclusions about old and the new argued against the testimony book hypothesis and that the New Testament writers really were referring to the Old Testament and its contextual meaning when they cited the Old Testament. But we're going to get into Dodd in just a few minutes, so I'm going to hold off on that. Um, but a number of people have followed Dodd in that, uh, yeah, okay, maybe there were testimony books, no problem. And we know there were testimony books uh, uh, among the, the church fathers. So some say, well, that may be evidence that there was in the first century. There were also some testimony, uh, short testimony books in Qumran about the Messiah. Some say, well, that, that further may indicate and point to the idea that New Testament writers had them all. That's fine. But that's not all they had access to. I think they had access to the Old Testament. And I think that would have been primarily the idea. And who's to say? They might have referred to the testimony books, and that would have pointed them further to the Old Testament context. So the most balanced view, I think, is that there was the existence of such lists, probably plural lists, but that the New Testament writers had access also to actual Old Testament scrolls containing whole Old Testament books. Some may have been committed to memory, like Paul. You know, he studied under the greatest rabbi of the time, Gamaliel. And uh, we know in Jewish education, especially formal education, that they memorize large, tr large tracts of the Old Testament. Likely Paul had that memorized and that believers in general had access to the Old Testament once they come into the uh, covenant community. Uh, just to mention a few passages, for example, in uh, Acts 17, 11, and you'll remember all of these passages, but they all show the Old Testament was available. Um, for people to refer to. In Acts 17, verse 11, you'll remember that uh, Paul went uh, to Berea, talking about Jesus as Messiah. It says, now the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They're examining the Old Testament to see if these things were so. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Sorry, Romans 15, 4. Paul says, and again, you'll remember this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, that may be referred to what's being read in church from the Old Testament, but it may also include uh, the notion that people possessed uh, the Old Testament can be encouraged by it. First Corinthians 10, 11. Um, Paul says these things happened to them in the wilderness, speaking of Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired. And, uh, and I think this is a very good one to show that believers had access to the Old Testament. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I don't think that's just uh, talking about the preached word from the Old Testament. Certainly it's including that. I think it's including that uh, uh, some had access to the scriptures. Um, and very interesting that Paul probably did possess 
Old Testament books, not just had them memorized. Second Timothy 4.13 says, when you uh, uh, bring, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and bring the books, the Biblia, the Ta Biblia, uh, especially the parchments. Um, so, uh, again, I don't think the New Testament writers were limited just to some floating testimony list, but I think they had access to the scriptures to one degree or another. This is a good break because when we come back, we're going to talk about the contribution of C.H. Dodd, uh, who was no evangelical, but his little book titled According to the Scriptures is one of the best books in the Old and the New that you can find. So I think we, we need to take a five-minute break here. <laughs> 